We'll be in Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll especially be looking at verses kind of 13 through 16 this morning. We've been starting, I started two, out two weeks ago in chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. And really, verses 5 through 15 is one complete thought. And so what I'm going to seek to do this morning is to tie that whole thought together from, from beginning to end. So you can see up on the screen, the passage is going to be there as well. But as you, if you will, just start looking in your Bibles around verse 5. And I'm just going to walk us through the main points of what we looked at the last two weeks. We started out two weeks ago talking about how Jesus, this one that the author spent all of chapter 1 showing us that he is more glorious than the angels... That this Jesus is also the one who took on flesh and has become like us in every way. And he did that. He took on humanity because God had a glorious purpose for humanity. You see it there in verses 6 through 8. From David's Psalm 8, this idea that God created humanity to be crowned with glory and honor and to rule as God's image-bearing representatives over everything that God made. But we saw how our rebellion against God has ruined that. That rather than being crowned with glory and honor, we are covered with shame. Rather than ruling over the works of God's hands, we'll see today in verse 15, we are slaves rather than rulers. But in verse 9, we saw that Jesus is the one who came like us and was made lower than the angels like us to become the humanity that we were always intended to be. And then he suffered to the point of death. And it says there in verse 9, because of his suffering to the point of death, Jesus has now been crowned with that glory and honor that God intended for humanity. And he has tasted death for us. We learned last week from verse 10 that now Jesus is the one who has blazed the trail. He is the pioneer of our salvation. Through his suffering of death, he has blazed the trail so that he might bring many sons to glory with him. Last week, we really focused at the end of verse 11 on this idea that Jesus is no longer ashamed to call us brothers. That he came and conquered shame, conquered that that shame that separated us from God in order that he might now restore our honor and bestow on us the title of brother or sister as children of God. And what we're going to see this week, especially in verses 14 and 15, is that Jesus did all of that so that through death, like we just sang, he might trample over death through death. That he might destroy the one who has the power of death and free us from lifelong slavery to death. So if you will, I'm going to read verses 14 through 16 for us real quick. In verse 14 it says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. You see what he does there in verse 16? He brings up angels one more time. Kind of, verse 16 is really a transitional verse, and so I'm going to start with that one and just explain how that one works, and then we'll get into especially verses 14 and 15. But in verse 15, or 16, he brings us back to this idea of angels one more time, and he kind of puts a bow on his whole discussion from chapter 1 of Jesus' superiority over angels. He closes that part of the discussion, but he continues his discussion of Jesus in relationship to humanity by focusing it on specifically on one family. You see that? 
says it is not angels that he came to help, but he helps the offspring of who? Abraham. That in Jesus taking on flesh and blood in humanity, not just to become some random human, he was born into a very specific human family, the line of Abraham, the children of Israel. Because all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God promised Abraham that it would be through him that all the families on earth would be blessed. What we're going to see from the rest of the book is basically chapter 1 was Jesus in relationship to angels. Chapter 2 is Jesus in relationship to humanity as a whole. And from verse 16 of chapter 2, basically through the end of the book, it's Jesus in relationship to Israel. But the whole reason why he's going to spend the rest of this book talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's purpose for Israel is because the purpose for Israel was to bring blessing to everyone. And in order to bring blessing to everyone, he had to do it through the line of Abraham. So that's what we're going to see, especially next week and following. We're going to get deep into some Old Testament history. Not just because I think history is fun, but because everything that God instituted for Old Testament Israel was a part of this overarching plan to bring blessing to all people. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that plan. If Jesus came disconnected from the story of Israel, he would not be the promised savior that we should look for. But he's going to go at great length to show us that Jesus fulfills God's purpose for Israel so that we can believe he also fulfills God's purpose for humanity. Does that make sense? Okay, so look back with me at verse 14. Starts out in verse 14 saying that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. This is one of the clearest statements in the New Testament about Jesus' incarnation, his enfleshment, that he did not just come in the appearance of a person as some sort of apparition. No, he actually took on the very flesh and blood of humanity. He became a man while still being fully God. That's why sometimes we refer to Jesus as the God-man, because that is who he is. 100% God, 100% man. No one ever in the history of the world has been who Jesus is. But look what he says in the second half of verse 14. It says that he took, partook of these same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That the whole reason why Jesus took on humanity, the same flesh and blood as us, was not just so that he can relate to us. Not just so he can know what it's like and walk a mile in our shoes. But he took on humanity in order to die. And he says that through that death, he would destroy the one who has the power of death. And who's the one who has the power of death? The devil. Hold on a second. Why does the devil have the power of death? It almost seems like giving him too much credit. Doesn't it? How is it that the devil holds the power over death? God gave it to him? That could be, yeah, that's part of it. But where did the idea of death originate? In the Garden of Eden. Who told Adam and Eve that they would die if they ate from the fruit of the tree? God did That was the just consequence that God himself put in place if they ate from the fruit of the tree. But who's the one who came along and contradicted that and deceived Adam and Eve into eating from the fruit of the tree? The devil. 
That's the way that the devil gains power over death, if you will. It's not that it's his power inherently over death, but because he was the seducer, the the deceiver of mankind in coming under death, he therefore gains authority in that way. It's kind of like the idea that we see in Romans 6.23 where it says the wages of sin is death. And as Satan, the one who deceived us into sinning, into disobeying God, we came under that authority. John Owen, the great Puritan pastor theologian, he wrote it like this. I'm going to put this quote up on the board for you. He says, all of Satan's power over death was founded on sin. The obligation of the sinner to death gave Satan his power. But if this obligation was removed, Satan's power would also be taken away. You remove our obligation to death, the fact that our, the wages of our sin is death, and you remove the most powerful weapon from Satan's arsenal. And that, he says, is what Jesus did through his death. He destroyed the one who has the power of death. Or actually, a better way to understand that word destroy there in verse 14 is that he nullified Satan's power. That word means to nullify or to render inactive or inoperable, just can't work anymore. We see later on, like especially in Revelation chapter 20, this idea that one day God will take Satan and cast him into the lake of fire. And at that point will be when he is fully and finally destroyed. But we're not there yet. What we see here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, speaks more to the idea of Satan being emptied of his power, being rendered obsolete and nullified. Jesus has taken the trump card out of Satan's deck, as it were. He can no longer use our obligation to death as a means of power and coercion over us because Jesus has defeated death. And look what he says in verse 15. He says that the reason why he came to nullify Satan's power over death is to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now that that translation, the way they rendered that in English, it's a little bit convoluted. It's hard to tell what it's saying. Here's a better way to understand what it's saying. That Jesus came to deliver those who all their lives were slaves to the fear of death. That the slavery, the bondage that we are in as human beings is to the fear of death. There's a sense of irony, like I mentioned before in this passage. When you look back at verses 7 and 8, you see that God created us for honor and glory and to rule over the works of his hands. But now in verse 15, we've fallen from that lofty position and now are enslaved to the fear of death. Tom Schreiner, a New Testament scholar, he said it like this. I'm going to put this slide up there for you. He said, death means that human beings do not reign, but are ruled over by a foreign power. For they fear their eventual demise that comes inexorably or inescapably upon them. In every moment of happiness, death is our dark shadow, reminding us that our joy is short-lived. That's an intense way to put it. But what I'd love to do over the next couple minutes is just break this down and go, because I think that I think that the fear of death shapes our lives probably more than we even realize. 
Because we see the fear of death not just in those, in those life or death moments, those when we talk about, oh, my life flashed before my eyes. Oh, it was a near-death experience. We don't only see the fear of death from the person on their deathbed knowing that each breath might be their last. All of us, even no matter how healthy or young you are, live under the shadow of death. It's almost like the idea of, um, of cut flowers. You know how we do that? We go on like Valentine's Day or our wife's birthday or something like that. We get her this nice, huge, big bouquet of roses as a testament of our undying love. And we give them dying things <laughs> to reckon as a symbol of our undying love. Because that's what they are, no matter how beautiful those roses are. At the moment that you cut them off from the plant, even if you put that little packet thing of, of plant food in it, it's dying. It might look good for a day or two or five, but it is withering and dying. It strikes me as ironic that oftentimes at funerals, people will send these beautiful flower arrangements. We do a lot of funerals here at the church, and I've gotten to officiate several of them. And it's interesting because usually we'll be down here at the bottom of the steps in like the casket or urn or something like that. We'll be up in the front with all the flower arrangements in front. And so as the pastor officiating, you're kind of standing with the the audience in front of you and the flowers behind you. The last funeral that I did, I was struck in the middle as I was walking through the gospel by how similar the flowers behind me were to the people in front of me. Dying even as they still live. Living even as... They die. I think that's what gives funerals that poignancy and even the pain of it is because we spend so much of our lives doing things to distract us from the reality of death. But funerals are one of those rare times when we stop and sit and stare death in the face for a while. Think about the things we do in our lives that are really just the shadow of death. We live our life on deadlines right? Things have to get done. I got to get it done. I don't have time. There's busyness. I don't have all day. I can't stop and smell the roses because there's a deadline. Our lives are dominated by deadlines because our life is dominated by an ultimate deadline. And we don't know when that is. You ever thought about what makes it so hard to say goodbye when loved ones or friends move away? It's the shadow of death. We don't know how much longer we have. We don't know if we will see that person again. Because while we're apart, the sand keeps running from the top of the hourglass to the bottom, and we don't know how much is left up here. The fear of death is what drives adrenaline junkies, thrill seekers, those people who like to push the envelope. All of that is basically a response to the fear of death. It's the idea of life is short, so might as well live like you're going to die young. And sadly, those who live by that motto usually do die young. We've had far too many of their funerals in this room. But it's not only the adrenaline junkies that are living under the fear of death. Even those who crave safety and comfort and protection, that's equally motivated by the fear of death. It's not just that life is short, it's that life is fragile. So protect it. Make it last. It's what drives our fear of taking risks 
even good risk, to help others in need. Why should I risk my life or even just the quality of my life in order to help someone else? What if something happens to me? What if something happens that hampers my ability to enjoy this life while I have it before I die? We fear missing out on anything that's enjoyable or comfortable or just memorable that we could have now because we don't know how many more rides in the merry-go-round that we have. That's why we make bucket lists. All the stuff I want to get done and see and experience in this life before I kick the bucket. There's an irony in all of this. Now, here's, think about this for a second. It was our desire to live for ourselves that brought us under the curse of death in the first place. But it is our ongoing fear of death that is the biggest justification for why we think we should still live for ourselves. Because YOLO, you only live once, right? Or maybe in a more historically accurate version, why are our lives dominated by the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness? Because those are the very things that death makes it impossible for us to have in any lasting form. We are enslaved to the fear of death. But, verse 15, that fear of death, that enslaving reality to the fear of death is exactly what Jesus came to liberate us from. The way it's written here is almost in the language of the Exodus. As a matter of fact, if you look down in the beginning of chapter 3, Jesus is compared to Moses, the great deliverer who brought God's people out of slavery in Egypt. And he's already starting to inform that discussion by referring to Jesus here as our deliverer, our emancipator, who didn't just get us out of 400 years of slavery, but took us out of the lifelong slavery to death. It's what we sang in that last song, Oh, death. Where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, he pulled the stinger out of death. It has no victory over us anymore. As Paul said in Romans 8, he said that nothing, not persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or even death itself could separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if that is true, if Jesus has freed us from the fear of death, how should we then live? How should our lives as followers of Jesus look differently, not just in what we do, but how we think, how we act, how we live, if we have been freed from the fear of death? Not just in what we do, but even why we do it. This is what I'd like to do over the next few minutes, is just walk through what I, what I think from Scripture our lives should look like if we're free from the fear of death. Here's the first one. Freedom from the fear of death means that we can enjoy life. We can still enjoy life, but we don't have to enjoy it with the frenetic urgency of running against the clock. We can set aside our bucket lists and all the things that we feel like we have to experience in this world because... We know that this world is not all that there is. There is a world to come in which we will have forever. 
So we don't have to have our best life now. We couldn't possibly have our best life now. But we can enjoy life with contentment. We can be content with what God does provide us in this life. And we can enjoy it with thanksgiving without being driven by a continual lust for more. And is there more that I could have? Freedom from the fear of death means we can enjoy life. The second one is this. Freedom from the fear of death means that we can work hard. Still work hard. But not work hard in order to justify our own existence. Not work hard in order to set up the perfect retirement so that we can milk everything good out of the twilight years of our lives. We can work hard and labor and strain and rest in order to serve and love others because now, finally, Jesus has made it clear to us that life isn't ultimately about us and what we want anyway. Freedom from the fear of death also means that when we suffer, whether with illness or injury, we can pray for and pursue healing, but with our ultimate hope on resurrection. Not just the healing of this body, but being given a new and glorious body that will never get sick or hurt again. Freedom from the fear of death means that we live in the hope of new creation. And as 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, that new creation has already started in us. Look at how Paul puts it in in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That new creation, regenerative work has already started within you if you are a follower of Jesus. But look at how he continues. Verse 18, he says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Go to the next slide. Here's how he says it. He continues this thought. He says, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Do you see what he says there? New creation has begun in us for the very purpose that it would not stop with us, but that we as those who have been reconciled to God might join him in the ministry of reconciliation. And this brings me to what I believe is the most important way in which our lives as followers of Jesus should look different because we've been freed from the fear of death. If we have been reconciled to God, we can now use these brief, fleeting, flowers-in-a-vase lives to join Jesus in his mission to reconcile the world to himself. Just as Jesus took on flesh and entered into our world, just as he was incarnated, so now we can join him in what many of us call incarnational ministry. It looks kind of like this. Can we put up that next slide? Here's the logic of it that I see from this passage. It says that Jesus entered our world. He came into our world and took on flesh because we are his image bearers. We were created for honor and glory, but we're living in the fear of death. And he came to make a way to remove our shame, to restore our honor, 
and to free us from the fear of death so that he might give us the glory that God always intended for us. And if that is what he has done in us, do you see what that enables us to do? Now we can enter into the world of others, into the hard things, into the bad things. We can enter into the hurts and pain in this world just like Jesus did for us because those people who do not know Jesus are equally image bearers of God. They were equally created for honor and glory, yet they are living in shame and the fear of death. And they need to know that Jesus has made a way to restore them so that they might share in the glory that God desires for them. That's what the fear of death enables us to do. Last week, as we were talking about these ideas of honor and shame, I shared this slide with you from Jason George's book. Can you put up that next one? He said, a shamed person can do very little to repair the social damage. More often than not, a person of higher status must publicly restore honor to the shamed. Remember that from last week? We talked from verse 11 how that's what Jesus has done for us. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. And in calling us brothers and giving us the title and privileges as children of God, he restores our honor. Now, here's the point I want you to see this week. If we are now the honored sons and daughters of God, what are we to do with that honored position? Seek to restore others as well. Like in the story of the prodigal son, now we are those who, honored by our father, can go to those still wallowing with the pigs and call them back to the father's table. We can go to those still living under the fear of death and bring them the hope that Jesus has freed us from the fear of death. Especially, get this, we can especially go to those who are marginalized by society. To those who are on the outside, those exploited by those more powerful than them, those living in shame. That's what Jesus did when he healed the blind and the lame, when he touched the lepers. It wasn't just about healing their diseases. It was about restoring their honor within the community. That's what Jesus was doing because they were made in the image of God. And when we hold these two realities together, that human beings are created for glory in the image of God, and that Jesus came to free us from the fear of death, and you hold those two things together, it's amazing the new opportunities for ministry that open up to us. We are now able to enter into the suffering and pain around us, of those around us, not just to walk a mile in their shoes, not just to go get an experience of what life is like in a third world culture. We can step into that suffering in order to seek to honor them and elevate them and show them Jesus' ability to free them from the fear of death, even if it means we suffer with them. Because we've been freed from the fear of death. Even if it affects our quality of life, even if we can't have our best life now, we have the hope of resurrection. That's what it means to follow Jesus freed from the fear of death. This has been our family history. Did you know that? Back in the day, the first couple hundred years of the church, during the time of the Roman Empire, around 250 AD, a series of massive plagues swept through many of the major cities in the Roman Empire. And you know what our brothers and sisters did? While the pagan Romans 
or offering sacrifices to their gods to try to turn the plague away so no one else would get sick, and taking the sick and dying and casting them out of the streets to get away from it, our brothers and sisters in Christ went to the suffering and the dying and cared for them and nursed their wounds and buried the dead because they believed that those people were made in the image of God and therefore should be treated with honor and dignity. Christians throughout history were the pioneers of modern medicine, hospitals and such, especially for the poor. Because it wasn't about whether or not they could pay for it, it was the reality that those people suffering and dying were image bearers of God. And they needed to know that Jesus had made a way to free them from the fear of death. Now many of our brothers and sisters in doing that contracted the very illnesses of the people that they were serving. Many of them died of the plagues that went through the cities. But they were willing to take that risk. Why? Because they'd been freed from the fear of death. They'd been freed from the fear of death, and they wanted others to know about that freedom. What does this look like for us in our day? By the grace of God, I don't think this is something that we need to start from the ground floor on. I think it's something that I see in the lives of many of you that God's already putting this desire to serve God's image bearers even in the midst of hard situations. Doesn't mean we can't continue to grow, but let me just highlight a few of the ways that I see this in our midst. God's called many of you for your livelihood to work day in and day out amidst hurt and suffering and pain. Many of you work in the medical fields as EMTs, as nurses, as first responders. Firefighters, policemen, you carry a heavy burden. And I just want to say to you this, we as your church family, we want, we want to learn how to help you carry that burden well. We want to learn how to help you to continue to see the noble risk in your service in laying your life on the line for others. We want to help you fight to see the people you interact with as image bearers of God, even when they act like anything but. We want you to know this freedom from the fear of death so that in your desire to seek to care for and protect, you can do it with that hope of resurrection. This is why God's put it on many of your hearts to care for the unborn, to volunteer through organizations like the CPC or just to reach out to, to uh, uh, pregnant moms who are wondering whether or not they want to keep their baby because you believe rightly that the baby in the womb is an image bearer of God and therefore should be treated with dignity and honor. Many of you, and an extension from that, have entered into the world of foster care and adoption because you rightly believe that if the baby in the womb is an image bearer of God, we as the church need to be ready to take care of them once they're out of the womb. And that is a glorious thing. Not easy, but so worthwhile. This is why many of you in our church work in hospice care. I love that, man. That is, a, that is an honorable burden to walk alongside those at death's doorstep and to do it day in and day out because you know that you might get a call. No. <laughs> You're willing to serve along people that are, that are seriously on the edge of death because you know that they're image bearers of God. 
And you can look death in the face on a day-to-day basis because you've been freed from the fear of death. And you can look at those people who are about to experience death and proclaim to them, you don't have to fear this anymore. Jesus has defeated the grave. That's good news. This is why last week when Britt and Nydia Fuller got up and talked about how they and that church, Livingstones, entered into a densely populated immigrant community in Canoga Park. Because regardless of their immigration status, their neighbors are image bearers of God. And they, as God's children, are seeking to show honor and care and bring the hope of the gospel into that situation. This is why some of you guys, your hearts break when you hear statistics like 21 million people around the world in bondage in situations like human trafficking. Being treated as property, either for labor or for sex, it breaks your heart to think of God's image bearers being treated as cargo. I'd actually love to show you, we put together a video of just highlighting two people from in our midst here at Cornerstone who they've taken this on as one of the burdens of their life to go, okay, if Jesus incarnated himself into my world, how can I seek to incarnate myself into the world of even those within our communities who are the victims of human trafficking? So if you will, turn your eyes to the video and then we'll we'll close it up with a couple thoughts at the end. Hi, I'm Shannon. I've been married for going on 10 years now. I'm the mother to three crazy, adorable boys, and I'm the director of a nonprofit based in Simi called Forever Found. I've been a part of Cornerstone for 16 years now. Hi, my name is Dave, and my wife, Michelle, and I have been a part of Cornerstone uh, for about 15 years now. Uh, We have three kids, and I work as a detective at the City of Ventura Police Department. I first heard about human trafficking right here in this room, actually. It was at a time in my life where I really felt God just challenging me to do something. I kept hearing the verse, 1 John 3, 16, over and over again, you know, where scripture tells us this is what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we have to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Initially, when I began to research what child trafficking was, I learned about the horrific reality that children around the world are being sold for $35, $50, $100, sold by their parents who can't eat. And my heart was just shattered, absolutely shattered. So when I first heard about human trafficking and all of this, uh, I really didn't feel any need to get involved. I think as a police officer, uh, it sort of wasn't news to me that there was terrible things happening uh, all over the world and even here. And, um, but over time, uh, my wife was really impacted by it uh, and just felt a burden for um, victims of trafficking. And she was really just shocked that this was even happening here and around the world. And, um, I think as she was processing it and praying for me, uh, God started to soften my heart. For us as police officers, we're usually dealing with uh, people at their worst, uh, in some of their worst situations, and some of the ugliest scenarios you can imagine. I know as a believer, we can come into that and uh, ask God to give us eyes to see them the way He does. I know personally, uh, I've had the opportunity to talk with girls um, who have been trafficked or have been prostituted at different times, and um, the response I got specifically from one, one girl was to say that I'm damaged 
and, uh, and that was her identity. That was all she could see herself as. They're being told the exact opposite of the truth. They're being told they're worthless. They're being told they're nothing. They're commodities. And that's not the truth. You know, the truth uh, that these girls, that these children need to hear is that they're made in the image of God, that God has a plan for their life, you know, that he died for their sins, that he sacrificed everything for them, you know, and that he could have made or created anybody, but he created them and he loves them. They need to know that they're treasured and they need to know that we, uh, the church, the body of Christ, uh, are here for them. So as a part of Cornerstone, uh, you know, God has really put this on my heart and given me eyes to just see how I can be used to help these victims around here. And I think my prayer for Cornerstone would really be that each person asks themselves, where has God placed them so that they can be his hands to those that are in need, to those who are the least of these? In learning about devastating things that are happening in our communities and around the world, it's so hard to know, you know, how to process those emotions, what to do. And there are a lot of specific things that you can do to help. But I think really the first thing is first to just start to beg God uh, to open our eyes to heartbreak and to give us the strength to take action, to not walk by, you know, to, to be that good Samaritan and to do something. Um, and second, you know, just to learn a little bit more about what trafficking looks like and make sure that you're not a part of the problem. According to one expert, approximately 90% of all of the women in the sex industry were either exploited, trafficked, or raped as a child. If you are in any way participating in the sex industry, and by that I mean soliciting a prostitute, uh, going to a strip club, looking at pornography, then you are a part of the problem. The reality is I think all of us as men um, have played into this problem in some way, um, whether that be through actual uh, prostitution or just through pornography. Um, We are exploiting the women that God has called us to love and protect, the women that he has created and that he loves. Um, but the, the hope is that we have a God that, uh, that raises the dead, that he takes out hearts of stone and he gives hearts of flesh. And so it's never too late. Uh, and I would just beg you uh, to look for help, to reach out to somebody. And so maybe you as a man um, feel dead in your sin or trapped in this, whatever it is, um, Jesus is there to say, come out from this, and he can, and he wants to glorify God with you in your life. I don't know what you're thinking right now in your head. Probably a mix of heartbreak, conviction, and I gotta do something. I hope that's what's on your heart. The question I'd love to leave you with is what, what does it look like for you in where God's placed you to do incarnational ministry, to enter into the hurt and suffering and bondage of those around you in order to bring the hope of the gospel? I don't know what it might look like in your life. I don't know what it looks like in your life right now, but I know this. You don't have to be afraid. Jesus has liberated us from the fear of death. You don't have to be afraid, and this is what God has made us for. This is what he's saved us for. It is his work 
to restore honor and to free people from slavery to death. But it is our work to testify to that freedom in our lives. So the reality is you cannot testify to a freedom that you yourself have not experienced. And so I would say this to you this morning. Just what Dave said at the end of the video. If you feel dead in your sin, if you feel trapped by the shame of what you've done, we have a God who raises the dead. We have a God who takes hearts of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh. And he is calling you out of your sin this morning. He is calling you out of your shame and fear into the hope of resurrection so that you can share that hope with others. I'm gonna invite the band to come up. We're gonna sing one more song together. It's the one we sung last week as well. I'm no longer a slave to fear because I'm a child of God. And I would invite you guys. There's gonna be some of us up by the prayer room, even Dave and I think Shannon. I know Shannon will be here next service. Dave and Shannon are gonna be up here as well if you wanna pray with somebody or even just talk about how to get involved in caring for the needs of others. But as you will, would you stand with me and let's pray as we get ready to sing. Jesus Christ, we exalt you as the better Moses, as the one who not only saved people from slavery in a literal sense, but the one who has saved us from slavery to the overarching fear of death. You trampled over death by your death and you are calling us to walk in this new, indestructible life. Oh God, whatever we need to do with this message, whether it's to repent and ask for forgiveness for our sins and ask you to redeem us from it, whether it's to come to you, Jesus, and place our faith in you for the first time, or whether it's just to beg you to get us off of our seats and get us moving into the lives of those around you so that we can join you in your ministry of reconciliation, would you minister your word to your people's hearts by your spirit? We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus.